In the Bible class hour, we're going to kind of step back from some of the individual texts of Scripture, and we're going to approach the subject overall. Uh, we'll, we're going to look at the subject of this hour, how to study the Bible for all that it's worth. Now, I want to begin this morning by asking you a question, and that is, obvious as we think about the times in which we live, people don't know their Bibles perhaps as they once did. Would you say that that's a fair statement? People don't know the Bible as well? Now, people give various reasons for why they don't study their Bibles. What are some reasons that you have heard, if you've ever discussed that with friends, co-workers, family, why they don't study the Bible? It's hard to understand. Okay, I want to come back to that one. If I can just hope, put press pause on that and ask for some other reasons people give. It's hard to understand. What else? Time, right? You think about these devices in, in several, which just buzzed in my pocket. So I hope, are one of you t texting me? No, it's somebody else. Um, you know, about 25 years ago, people, uh, when, the, when the internet came about and, and uh, technology for personal computers and, and they reduced the size of that, make our life so much more simple, one of the things that they argued was it was going to give us so much more time, right? It was going to make it so much uh, more efficient, but it hasn't happened, has it? We're, we're scrambling for time as much now or more than we ever have, and we're pulled in so many different directions, so many obligations, and fitting in time to study the Bible... Uh, seems to be something difficult for a lot of people to do. So they just say, I don't know when. Or, or I'll wait to the end of the day and I sit down and, and read my Bible and the next thing I know I'm asleep. You know, I, they just don't have time. What else are reasons people give? Okay, they, they argue that the Bible is not divinely inspired. And, and if it were our task today to talk about how we got the Bible... And it's an enriching study. When you look internally, when you look externally at the proofs and the evidences, when you look at the geographic accuracy, the historical accuracy, predictive prophecy, when you look at the cohesion of theme, which we'll talk about more in just a moment, when you begin to look at the archaeological support for Scripture, all the different ways, the scientific foreknowledge, this is not a book that man could have produced, but people haven't undergone that study and so they believe that it's just the mere product of men who are writing with their own agenda in mind. So people will say, I don't want to read it for that reason. Any other reasons people give? Great. Good. That's perfect. And, and, and if you, you didn't hear all of that, but I'll, I'll, I'll share a synopsis of it. And that is, we don't have the attention span. And, and because of technology and other things, it's reduced our ability to really focus as we perhaps once did. And so people will say, and the example was given of Luke chapter 1, which has some length to it, but you get to Luke chapter 2 and it's even longer, and you begin to say, I just don't have time to follow such a regimented plan. Maybe there's a different way to approach that. So that's a good idea. We, we just, our attention span is shortened. And to read 
generally speaking, is something that people don't do like they once did. There's some ways around that as well we'll talk about. What are other reasons people give? Just a couple of more. Okay, you both said the same thing. It's out of date. Now, a lot of the things that people say, I hope the, the time that we have together in Bible study is going to erase, it's going to eliminate. We, we do realize that it was written over 1,600 years by about 40 different writers, the last of which was at the end of the first century. You think about our own country, how much changes in time, how much the world has changed in 50 years, 100 years, much less 2,000 years. If you ever go to another part of the world, think about the cultural diversity, how different that culture is from your culture, and how there are some limitations in interaction because of that. And yet that again proves to us the transcendence, that is the, 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 the fact that God had to produce this as we drill down and begin to study the Bible for all it's worth, its relevance and its uh, uh, practicality grows. But any other reasons anybody wants to share? Right. You know, and, and, and a lot of this kind of overlaps, doesn't it? And it's, it's, it's boring. It, 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 it's, it's all, you know, here's the thing. You begin reading Genesis. And it's in what we call narrative of style. That is, it's revealing accounts of peoples and places and things. And, and it can, you know, it starts with in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And you walk through Noah and Abraham and, and various characters in their lives and their struggles and their victories. And, and it captures your attention. You get to Exodus. And there you have God sending Moses to free an oppressed people from Egyptian bondage. And you have the ten plagues. And you have the Passover and the Exodus. And you have the ascension up on Mount Sinai. And it's riveting. And you have the giving of the law. And then from chapter 25 to 40, you have all this tedious detail about tabernacle furnishings. You get to Leviticus and it's all these laws that seem obscure to us about how to deal with leprosy and boils and impurities and Levitical priestly obligations. And if you get to Numbers, there's some narrative in there as you look at the wilderness wandering and some of the things that happen there. You get to Deuteronomy, it's the second giving of the law. People usually will give up. They'll say, you know, there's no explosions. There's no, you know, there's no sound effects. There's no CGI. Uh, and, and so you approach that differently than you do a passive uh, reception of entertainment. And yet I believe that if we study the Bible for all that it's worth, it begins to come alive. You know, your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. More to be desired are they than gold. Yeah, the much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. I believe that's something that's not just possible for people who live long ago and far away, but it's something that's possible for us. But again, to, we've got to study the Bible for all that it's worth. When we approach the Bible, there are different ways in which we can do that. And I want you to think about in the time that we have this morning, looking at our approach to the Bible as coming from a funnel. We're going to start from the very biggest way all the way down to the very smallest way in which we can study the Bible. And each part is very imperative for us to study the Bible for all that it's worth. Now, if you're going to study the Bible for all it's worth, and we're thinking about from the largest to the smallest, what's the, the largest way you can study the Bible? What's the largest um, division? The whole thing, right? Um, I think it was it Trevor and DJ that helped me out. Is that right? 
Okay, thank you very much. You got a piece of paper from Trevor and DJ. What are you, various ones of you that had that sheet of paper, what do you got? What do you have? Okay, you think it's plain. There are no plain pieces, though they may appear to be. A few of you have said you have, they're white, correct? They're, they're, there appears to be no other details than the, the whiteness of that little square, correct? All right, who has something that's not just mere white squares? Okay, all right, landscape. What else? Oh, oh. All right. Okay, so she's, do, she's making some deductions, making some guesses, but she has a little bit more detail on hers. Uh, lakes and perhaps snow and trees. That may be the key piece of the whole thing. It sounds like you got all kind of stuff. What else? Okay, it's, it's, it's got color. It's dark. And what else? A figure in the middle. All right, so some clarity, but maybe there's, there's a need for, for more to, to give you a, a better picture of what you have in your hands. Anything different from what I've heard? Water, landscape. Somebody, yes ma'am. A, a small, dark, you have a triangle? I must have miscut. You're supposed to have a square. You've got the special piece. That's the key piece perhaps. Now here's the point of all of that. If you took all of these pieces of paper, and I don't know, there's probably 40 or 50 of them, and we selected an area in the auditorium, perhaps um, up here at the front and put all of it together, you would each take your pieces and it would take some time, but together you would come up with this big picture. Now this big picture, let me make sure I have it up the right way. So those white pieces, now mine has more than yours. So if I gave it to you, it was part of this sky here, maybe in the middle, or if it was a little bluish tint, somebody said it was the sky, they figured that out. And there, this is St. Mary's Glacier in Idaho Springs, Colorado, largest glacial field in North America. There is no snow in this particular picture, but there usually is. Um, happened to catch it on a day when there wasn't. The whole picture, you had a piece. And that piece was important, but it did not tell you the whole picture by itself. When you think about the Bible... And you look at it from a one-piece perspective, what if the assignment for Bible class today was explain the meaning, the purpose of the Bible using only the book of Obadiah? Would you want to do that? Book of Obadiah, one chapter, Old Testament book. That's all you get. Can you tell me what the whole Bible is about with that one piece? You can't. It's rich. It's inspired. But by itself, it's inadequate. How about the book of Genesis? The, the book that is a, a, what is the foundation of everything. It's the book of beginnings. It's vital. New Testament writers build on it throughout. But if that's the only piece that you had, do you have the complete picture? You don't. The book of Acts has been called the hub of the Bible. It is the history book of the church. It's the culmination of so much. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ having its meaning and application in the establishment of the church which was in the mind of God from eternity. But if that's the only piece that you have, do you have the whole picture? You don't. You've got to have all of them. And when you take those pieces together, remember we're looking at this from the funnel standpoint, and you look at the Bible from its largest indivisible unit. The Bible has one theme that's being developed from the beginning to the end, and that is the salvation of man through Christ to the glory of God. And you can walk through, I won't have time to drill down on it, I'm just going to mention it, 
But as you walk from Genesis to Revelation, you have that whole picture, those pieces like I gave you that come together to give us that whole picture. And as we look at the Bible historically, it is His story. It's the story of Jesus. In Genesis 1-1 through 3-14, you have the Messiah needed. You have a people, a place, a precept, a a penalty, and a presumption. Uh, and, and we can talk, maybe at some other time, about what all that's about. But they, man was created sinlessly. He chose to sin. There's a gap. There's a separation between himself and God. And man can't do anything to, to bridge that gap. God's got to provide an answer. And the rest of the Bible is about showing the answer to the sin problem we all have. There's the Messiah promise, Genesis 3.15. There is the Messianic genealogies, Genesis 4, 5. Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahalalel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, and Noah. All planks on a bridge bringing us ever closer to God. We have the Messianic genealogies preserved in Genesis 6 through 9. Noah, the the key figure there. The sin of of earth was so great that God decided to destroy them all. And yet God made a promise. He's going to keep his promise because he's perfect. And so we see through Noah and his genealogies, we're going to have earth to continue and man's going to continue to replenish the earth. You have the messianic genealogies in Genesis 10 and 11. Ten more planks on that bridge. Uh, Seth, Arphaxad, Selah, Eber, Peleg, Reu, Sirug, Nahor, Terah, and Abraham. You have the Messianic genealogies in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob from Genesis 12 through Genesis 50. You have the Messianic nation. God promises Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. A nation's got to have people. It's got to have law. It's got to have territory. Exodus 1 through 19 is the Messianic nation by way of the people. Then in Exodus 20 through Deuteronomy, you have the Messianic nation by way of law. And then you have in Joshua, you have the Messianic nation by way of the territory. When they conquered that land, that promise of, uh, to Abraham to make of him a great nation is fulfilled. And then you have the Messianic nation before it becomes a kingdom. And that's uh, the period of the judges. That's Judges, Ruth through 1 Samuel chapter 8. And then you have the Messianic kingdom, the United Kingdom. From 1 Samuel chapter 8 through 1 Kings chapter 12, it's the reigns of Saul, David, and Solomon. About 120 years. It's the time in which Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon are written. Job probably belongs to the book of Genesis. And then you have the Messianic kingdom, the divided kingdom. From 1 Kings 12 through 2 Kings chapter 17, because of the sin of Solomon in leaving God for his wives' idols... You have God taking the kingdom away from uh, Solomon in, in, in the majority. He keeps two uh, tribes because of his father David. And that line is going to continue and the Savior is going to eventually come from that. There's going to be the northern kingdom that keeps the name Israel. Not one righteous king. God sends Isaiah, Hosea, Joel, Jonah, Amos, and Micah to them. And as the result of the pleading that is not heeded, the Assyrians come down and take them into uh, captivity and destroy them. In 2 Kings chapter 17, you have the Messianic kingdom in Judah alone from 2 Kings 17 through 2 Chronicles 36. It's divided into three periods. The, the before uh, Babylonian captivity, during Babylonian captivity, and after Babylonian captivity. Before, God sends Jeremiah, Obadiah, Nahum, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah. We have their books of prophecy saying, don't do like Israel, repent. They don't. And so God says, you're going into captivity. You have the Messianic, uh, I mean, you have the uh, time during the Babylonian captivity where Ezekiel and Daniel write about a renewal, a return, and a time in which God's kingdom is going to be established and it's going to be fulfilled through Jesus. 
And in the second part of the book of Daniel, we'll talk about it in just a moment. In that first part, he talks about a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. And then at the end of the Old Testament, after Babylonian captivity, you have Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Zechariah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi that are written. And then you have that intertestamental period, the Messianic kingdom between the testaments. Daniel talked about in Daniel 7 through 12 with four successive empires. You have the, um, the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. And in the times of those kings, the Messiah is going to come. In the New Testament, you have the Messianic uh, kingdom, the Messiah comes, Matthew through John. In the book of Acts, you have the Messianic kingdom, the kingdom established and expanded in the book of Acts. In the, the, uh, you have the Messianic kingdom and how you live life in it, from Romans to Jude. We're citizens in that kingdom. Christ is our king. The headquarters are in heaven. He is the one who tells us how to live as citizens in that kingdom. And then you have the Messianic kingdom, its eternal destiny in the book of Revelation. Now that's the skeleton. We spend a lifetime putting meat on the bones, but remember what we're doing. We're looking from the biggest down to the smallest. As I look at the Bible in its most indivisible part, I see that there's one message from Genesis to Revelation, despite there being 40 different writers with different backgrounds, different occupations, different educational levels. There's one author, God, dispensing one message. You take all those pieces together and you get a big picture. But then you drill down some more. What's the next smallest way, apart from, we don't have time really to deal with the different covenants, that would be great. We've done some of that with what we've just looked at. If you get smaller than Old Testament and New Testament, what is the next smallest way to look at the Bible? Speak with confidence. Okay, genres. All right, very good. And those genres point to different purposes that are being accomplished by the writer. You don't look at a book of prophecy the same way as you look at a gospel. But, and we'll see more of that as we look at what happens when we look at an even closer level. So you have the, 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 the uh, what is it, 512, and in the Old Testament, and then you have the, the 4, uh, 1, and then 22 and 1. You see, that's not right. I'm, 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 I'm a preacher, I'm not a mathematician. Five, four, one. 21-1. All right, there's no, there's no extra book. I didn't, I'm not introducing something new. But you have those different genres of material. All right, let's go down another level. What's after that? The next largest indivisible part. The books. Now, when you approach each book of the Bible, keep in mind that these books were originally given to their recipients as a whole. When you begin to study a book of the Bible, let's not just take a little piece here and a little piece there. But we have the dilemma, right? In this, uh, in this, this time-starved world where we just really don't have all this time, here's something that you have as a built-in advantage in the Atlanta area. It seems to me anytime you get in your car and you want to go across the street to the convenience store, it's going to take you 20 minutes. That being the case, fire up your audio Bible. Bluetooth. What at Bible Gateway or something? And listen, there are a lot of Bible books, and, and it has been said many times, it's going to take you 20 minutes to go anywhere around here. And if that's the case, there are a lot of the books of the Bible you can listen to in their entirety. 
And you go, but yeah, but I, I can't really focus. It's going on in the background. I'm thinking about other things. The amazing way that the Bible, your mind works is that you are absorbing and you are retaining more than you think. And as you listen to it over and over again, you're beginning to notice concepts. You're noticing key words, themes, ideas. You know it works. Do any of you have a particular musical artist that you like especially? Somebody who, who you could say in, in your more honest moments, I know every word of every song of this particular artist. How did that happen? You listened. And maybe you sang along. And maybe you can't quote along with the scripture as you hear it, but you're absorbing material. And the next thing that you can do is that when you begin to sit down, take some time. Maybe put Netflix on pause for a little while and go down and sit down with a pad and paper and take a book of the Bible and go through and begin to note some of the words that you see recurring. Note who is the writer and to whom they're writing and the details that you find in there. Look, at, and we'll talk more about what you do as you drill down even further. But as you do that, you begin to see more. And what you're going to find out is that there is an overall theme in every book of the Bible. That's de there are, are major ideas in it. So often what we do is we perpetually stay in isolation. That is, we'll pluck a verse. And, we'll, and sometimes even in our Bible class, if we're not careful, the only way that we ever approach it is, all right, let's read uh, chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll read down through verse 4. And we, we divorce it from its context. And you think about how these books were originally delivered. Think for a moment about the epistles. Can you imagine the church at Colossae saying, hey, we got a letter from Paul and he comes in and, and the, uh, the brother that, that's reading that reads through and he says, all right, we're going to read about th three lines of, of what Paul has written to us. Okay, next week we'll come back and we'll read some more. There has to be cohesion. Now, we have to do that week by week, but we need to make sure that we perhaps give its background, understand what the major themes of that book are before we begin to drill down to the individual application to be made all the way through. A neat thing about books of the Bible is that usually, no, not usually, every time, if you read the first chapter and the last chapter, they're going to be talking about the same thing. Now, they may be giving more detail at the end of the book. They may be making some applications as you go along. Let me give you just a couple of examples. The book of Matthew. When you look at the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 1, off the top of your head, can you remember anything that's being discussed in Matthew chapter 1? Genealogies. All right, first thing pops into our head. What's the purpose of the genealogies in the book of Matthew? Or why would Matthew give us those genealogies? Y'all are saying some great things, but I guess I have, uh, I have headphone ears. I can't hear you. The lineage of Christ. What are you trying to establish through the lineage of Christ? Somebody, he's the seed of David. Why is that important? What do they anticipate that seed of David to be? The Messiah. All right, so you have, it's exactly right, you have the genealogies for a purpose, and that is to establish that the Christ, the seed of David, is the Messiah. How else does Matthew do that in Matthew chapter 1? You remember what else happens? I mean, that's what we focus on. We think that's mostly all that's in Matthew 1. There's something very significant that follows that. It's okay if you cheat, by the way. It's not cheating, it's the Bible. So, the, all right, the birth of Jesus. Anything unusual about the birth of Jesus? I speak reverently. Yes. Right? 
And so the angel comes to Joseph and speaks of the manner of what's happening here. And it's miraculous. You have an establishment of the fact that this is no mere man, this Jesus of Nazareth, that through various means he is established as the promised Messiah, one who is unique, that no one else could fulfill. Now let's go to Matthew 28. What's happening in Matthew 28? The, re- say, the resurrection, right? And so you have Jesus who is not in the tomb anymore. That's, that's not ordinary. He's the first fruits of all them that sleep. This is done by the power of God. The, the, the preachers are going to say in the book of Acts. And so you have God's power emancipating Jesus from the grave, alive forevermore, destroying the work of the devil, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. And then before he leaves, somebody else said it. What does he do? He establishes his authority with a great commission. All authority is given unto me in heaven and on earth. What a bold, presumptuous statement. Of whom could that be said? The Messiah and none other. Matthew is talking about the same thing at the end of the book as he is at the beginning of the book. That's a gospel. That's in that genre. But let's go to an epistle. How about the book of James? We don't have time to look at this. But sit down with a piece of paper and write down the things that James is talking about in James chapter 1 that he is also talking about in James chapter 5. I came up with nine subjects that he's talking about in both of those chapters. You would expect that. Your writer is establishing what his inspired writing is about. As we examine those books, we do appreciate the fact that Scripture is written such that it is complementary. But we want to be very careful that we don't define words that writers use in other books, impose that on what another writer is doing in a different book. Paul is doing something different with faith in the book of Romans than James is in the book of James. And so we're going to approach each book. Now, if we break it down to the next, uh, the next divisible part that man has not imposed, what would it be? We go from a book? All right. So that's why I add that little caveat at the end. Who, who gave us chapters? Man. All right. So we've got to get smaller than chapters. Paragraphs. All right, so material that's written in in any subject uh, that's whole is composed of main ideas that we call paragraphs. And so when I begin to study the Bible on that paragraph form, the, the, the highfalutin term is pericope, but I want you to think paragraph, this body of material. In that body of material, there's main ideas. So what are we looking for when we're looking at paragraphs? Let me give you just a few ideas about what you could look for. Look for the writer going from the general to the specific. There's so many examples of that. For the sake of time, let me give you one. In Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16, the Bible says, uh, but, uh, But if you walk in the Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh and of the mind. All right, question. Just reading verse 16. What does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Well, if you just ask that question, even if you show that passage, if you divorce it from its paragraph, somebody will say, oh, well, you know, the Holy Spirit comes upon me and moves me to go here and moves me to go there, and I'm walking by the Spirit. Well, what's going to help us is to say, no, let's see what Paul says. And now there's the general statement. How does he get specific in that paragraph? Anybody know what happens in Galatians 5, 19 through uh, 21? 
the works of the flesh. All right, so I don't want to fulfill the desires of the flesh and of the mind. What are the desires of the flesh and of the mind? Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, and on and on that list goes. And then he follows up by saying, talking about what? The fruit of the Spirit. How do I walk by the Spirit? That's rich. By the direction of the Spirit. By the consequences of the spiritual life. That's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. How do I know what those things look like? The Spirit, as, as Eric prayed in his prayer, revealed those things for us in the Word. Otherwise, I'm guessing what it means to love or what it means to have joy, peace, and those, those matters. And so you'll find the Bible writers going from the general to the specific. Another thing that's occurring in a paragraph to look for are questions and answers. In this question and answer, so much information is given. One of the best examples, it seems to me, is John chapter 3. Nicodemus, the ruler, comes to Jesus by night. And uh, as he uh, uh, recognizes Jesus as a master, as a great one, uh, again, you, you have Jesus being established as an authority like no other. Uh, Jesus says, except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. What does Nicodemus do? He asks a question. How shall a man be born when he is old? Shall he enter his mother's womb a second time? Highlights that there are some confusing ideas or some questions people have about how do you become a part of the kingdom? Jesus answers, except a man be born of water and the Spirit, he shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. I tell you, you must be born again. And so you have answers given to the questions. You, you have uh, dialogue in paragraphs. You have conditional clauses, if-then statements, uh, that help us to, to understand what that paragraph's about. Let me give you just one example. In John 3.16, the golden text of the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting lives. What's the cause in John 3.16? All right, God's love. What's the effect of God's love? He gave His only begotten Son. You know what? You can do that another way. What if the cause is God so loved the world that He gave? What's the effect? That whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. What are we doing? We're trying to approach the Bible for all that it's worth. And as we drill down, going from the book as a whole to individual books within their literary genre, we're now looking at paragraphs, but we can drill down even further. Let's look at sentences. As we look at the sentences that make up the paragraphs, trying to understand what's in those paragraphs, we can find even more detail. And there's several. We don't have, we don't have the time to look at all of those. But when you look at the sentences, what are some things you're looking for in a sentence to see what that sentence is about? Subject and, and predicate. What else? Verbs, nouns. Well, you didn't know you can go back to English class this morning, did you? But it helps us with our Bible study. Verbs, nouns, adjectives, and adverbs. All right, you're looking for other things like conjunctions. So there's the individual parts of speech and how they work together. And that helps us in a sentence. For example, in, in Colossians 3 verse 1, with verbs, you have active and passive verbs. And I'm sorry, I know some people are math people and science people and some are English and history people. I kind of lean toward the English history more than I do the other. So I, I, I promise not to try to bore too much here. But verbs, if you then be risen, 
with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits at the right hand of God. There's action there, acting upon things that we do to act. It's very important. Pronouns. When we see something being referenced, you know, and you're sitting in a Bible study with somebody, so often what you want to do to establish context is when something is written, uh, if they don't have a red letter edition, if you want to show that it's Jesus that's talking about that, how do you establish that? You have a he, a my, an I. You go, let's go back and find the antecedent to this pronoun so that we can have clarity on who's speaking and it helps us to even know what's being spoken about. You look at comparisons. You look at contrasts. You look at repetitions of words. For example, 1 John 2.15, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loves the world, the, lo the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the things of this world pass away, but whoever does the will of the Father abides forever. What's 1 John 2, 15 through 17 focused upon and concerned about? The world. Do it again with 2 Corinthians 1, 3 through 7 with the word comfort. With which we are comforted, whereby we can comfort one another. The God of all comforts. You see, there's so much within the text of Scripture that helps us to appreciate what it is all about. But let's drill down one other layer. And let's look at words and phrases. Are the words and the phrases important? You know, when Jesus is preaching that Sermon on the Mount... He's talking about the fulfillment of the law, that He has come to fulfill it. He has come to bring us a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. When He talks about the accomplishment of His purpose, he's talking about, He talks about what not passing until He's fulfilled it. Depending on your version, jot and tittle. Some, some say, uh, uh, I don't... I know the King James. I don't know. Uh, small stroke and something else. I can't think of it. If you, if you have, happen to have another version. That, that, the idea is the smallest part down to the letters are important. Right? Every word of God is pure. All scriptures God breathed. There are not accidental words that the Holy Spirit uses through that writer to convey the message. And so these words are important. And just a little side note, when you see those italicized words, those are inserted by the translator. Don't, in a, what we call a formal equivalence where they're trying to give a word for word, uh, those translations not trying to give us thought for thought, you still have an imperfect, uh, imperfect uh, discipline that you're trying to do. That is because you don't have an exact equivalence for every single word from one uh, language to another. In other words, you have to construct sometimes with some words that help to complete the idea of the word. You have some Greek words that have two or three English words uh, to, 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 to translate that compound original word. But we're talking about the words that the Spirit moved men to write. Those words are important, every single one of them. And so when we come to understand what a book is about, to understand the Bible for all it's worth, I want to close with four P's that you can keep in mind that will help you to study the Bible for all it's worth, even down on that microscopic level. The first is prevalence. How often is a word used? As you sit down with your pad and your pen, and you begin to go through a book, when you find a word that seems significant, by the way, we're not talking about a, and, or the, 
We're talking about theologically significant words. For example, I think 63 times the word faith is used in the book of Romans. Paul's doing something with that word there. Um, The word coming is found 52 times in the book of Matthew. And Matthew's doing something with that. People are coming to Jesus, but they're coming to him for different reasons. Some are coming to test him. Some are coming to hurt him. Some are coming to be his disciples. Some are coming to listen to him. Some are coming to be healed by him. Matthew's doing something with that word. It's significant. The word knowledge is found 14 times in 2 Peter. What is Peter concerned with? There's two types of knowledge. There is that intellectual knowledge. There's that experiential knowledge. And he's wanting us in Christ to have both. The word walk is found eight times in the book of Ephesians. A good rule of thumb is, if a word is found at least one time per chapter, it's probably significant. Ask yourself, what is the writer doing with this word in this book? Prevalence. And by the way, as you walk through a book and you find all these prevalent words, if you find a verse that has a lot of those words in it, then it's probably significant to the book. For example, I'm going to mention this one again in a moment, John 20, 30, and 31. And uh, truly many other signs did Jesus in the midst of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that in believing you might have life through his name. Just to kind of a spoiler alert, here's some of the key words in, in John. The word signs is significant. Um, and if you get a concordance, you can kind of get a rundown on how many times that word appears in the book of John. Uh, the word disciples is significant. The word faith is significant. Life is significant. Jesus is significant. And so you would expect, which we'll show you in just a moment, that John 20, 30, and 31 is very significant to the book of John. So that's one thing we look for when we go to a book and we're looking at it by its words and its phrases is the prevalence of words. A a second thing we're looking for are purpose statements. There are some times in which the writer helps you out and he says, this is why I'm writing this book. John 20, 30, and 31 is one such book. He says... And many other signs truly to Jesus in the midst of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that. What is that? It's a purpose statement. I'm writing so that these two things will occur in your heart and in your life. And so what do you do with the book of John? He says there's there's signs. These signs go through the book of John. There are miraculous signs. There are non-miraculous signs. And as you walk all the way through that book, you see that the signs establish in the hearts of believers who Jesus is, and it hardens the hearts of those who refuse to believe. 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15 is another example. Paul says, But if I tarry long, that you may know how I write, so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Paul is saying, I am writing so that you may know how to behave in the Lord's church. And not not talking about behaving during the services, and if you're crying, you need mom and dad need to take them out. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, God's house, God's rules. Just like in your house, you have rules. And your children follow those rules. We're the children of God. How do we conduct ourselves in His house, the church? 
Now when you understand that that's what that is all about, then you begin to understand the instruction that's found in how to live a godly life in 1 Timothy. Why do we follow what we do with regard to the role of women in the church? 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, God's house, God's rules. Why do we have elders who must meet these qualifications? 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 8, God's house, God's rules. Verse 8 through 12, deacons, same thing. Preachers, why do they preach and must they preach the, the things that uh, God has said? And faithfully so, 1 Timothy 4. You know the answer. First Timothy chapter 5. How do you treat uh, widows? And how do you treat the, the family matters that come up within the context of the church? First Timothy chapter 6. You have rich uh, Christians. How are they to conduct themselves? What are they to do with those riches? How are they to fix their hopes? Not the way they want to, but the way that God says because it's His house, His rules. That's what First Timothy is about. Because Paul tells us with that purpose statement what it's about. Number three are prayers. Now this is something that is done more often in the epistles, and especially the epistles of Paul. But we appreciate that. At the beginning of most of Paul's epistles, Paul says, I, I, I pray, and then he elaborates on what it is he's praying about to that congregation in that context. Now you would not expect for somebody to say, I'm praying about these two or three very important things, and then never come back to it for the rest of that epistle. No, what he's doing is he's highlighting. He's saying these things are important. Even in books where there are other ways to establish what that book's about, read the prayers. Let me give you two as a homework assignment. Ephesians 1, 15 through 19. And 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 5 are two examples that, that show us what the book is about. And ask yourself questions of those prayers. There's at least four what questions you can ask of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 1, 15 through 19. And then the, the last way is petition verbs. Now, petition verbs are something that were used in the, the, uh, the Koine Greek, and it was also used in earlier forms of Greek, to do something that they were not able to do, which we're able to do today. You, you may, any of you have that iPad where you can draw on it and you can, you can highlight it and do all of that? They didn't, they didn't do that in the first century. What they did do is they had ways to highlight and make things important. And the petition verb was a key way that that was done. To say, what I'm about to tell you is so crucial, it's so vital. Okay? And there are 52 petition verbs in the New Testament. And you will see as you study that book on that level, of the words and the phrases, how those petition verbs, pleading, I urge, I beg, I beseech. What the writer is saying is, please, this is so important. Now, the, the original word there... For, that's translated most often, uh, th that petition verb, is parakaleo, para, alongside of, kaleo, call. And so the idea is to call alongside. It's not to, to beat somebody up and, and to fire at somebody. The idea is, is to come along some, with, uh, beside somebody and say, look, let me, let me talk to you about this. This is so important. And so you'll find New Testament writers saying, I plead with you. I beg you. There are a few examples I'll point to and then the, the class will be yours. In 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10, Paul says, I beseech you that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. Is it fair to say, now we've done the study already, that 1 Corinthians is about the um, overcoming division and being united? Is that what it's about? You see, Paul is giving us this 
this flashing light, this neon sign that says 1 Corinthians is about this. Romans 12 and verse 1. Romans, like many of our New Testament books, can be divided into sections. You have what we call the doctrinal section in Romans 1 through 11. Great theological truths of the tension between uh, faith and works. You then have the outplaying of that. What does it look like in our lives? In Romans 12 and verse 1, I beseech you therefore by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And what is Romans about? What's the application? What's the key to the book of Romans? Is you take this doctrinal truth and you play it out in church life. And then one other is Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2. It is the only place in the New Testament where you have that petition verb occurring twice. I urge Euodia and I urge Syntyche that they be of the same mind. The word mind is very key as you walk through. It's a, it's a prevalent word in the book of Philippians. And if he is urging these two ladies to be of the same mind, what can we necessarily infer from that? They weren't of the same mind. And so what Paul does throughout the rest of that letter is he shows them the mind they're supposed to have. And the mind that they're supposed to have is to put others above themselves. And what you'll find Paul doing in that entire letter, it breaks down amazingly simple. He'll give an example himself who put others above self. And then an appeal to apply that example to their lives. Probably mainly first Yodi and Syntyche and the rest of the congregation. And then he'll give another example. Jesus, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And he appeals to them saying that Jesus put others above self. And then he applies it. And then Timothy. And then Epaphroditus. And he applies it. And then he does it again. He says, I'm going to do this again in chapter 3. And he uses himself. And then he uses the enemies of the cross as a, a negative example. And then the rest of the letter is, I want all of you church to apply this principle to how you live your life among one another. So that you can be the most fruitful, joyful people that there is on this earth. Now how do we determine that? By sitting down and looking at the Bible. And how God uses words and phrases to establish the purpose of those books. It's a lifetime. We never get to the bottom of that. And let's go back to our very original question. What people will say is, I don't understand it. Well, as we begin to study it more, we're going to understand it better. It doesn't seem relevant. It seems dry. It seems boring. It seems out of date. But as we drill down and we understand it better, it comes to life. And it becomes as applicable as the morning news. And that's what we can do to study the Bible for all that it's worth. Thank you very much for your attention.